This Week in Startups is brought to you by Gusto. Running a startup is hard work, but thankfully Gusto makes payroll easy. They also offer flexible benefits, onboarding, and so much more. Twist listeners get three months free at gusto.com slash twist. Our crowd helps you invest early in pre-IPO companies alongside professional VCs. If you're interested in investing, you can join our crowd for free at OURCROWD.com slash twist. And Vanta. Compliance and security shouldn't be a deal breaker for startups to win new business. Vanta makes it easy for companies to get a SOC 2 report fast. Twist listeners can get $1,000 off for a limited time at vanta.com slash twist. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Startups. My name is Jason Calacanis. I am an angel investor in the Silicon Valley. I run a firm called Launch. You can visit that firm launch.co. We don't have the M. We just have launch.co. And this podcast is something I started to meet founders and talk to them about their businesses because I'm passionate about startups, passionate about entrepreneurship and investing in these great companies. And during the pandemic, we had a concern that we were hearing from our portfolio companies. Hey, it's getting harder to raise money. It was this big question mark. Will founders be able to raise money if you don't meet with investors in person? So this is going to be a really challenging year, we thought, if for six months or a year, people can't meet in person, uh, then no fund, ca- no uh, company can ever get funded. Well, we were sitting there in the pandemic. And we said, well, what if we started a remote demo day and we just said, anybody who wants to pitch to investors, we'll, we'll create that space, if you will for people to uh, meet companies. So we started remotedemoday.com, just a little throwaway idea, throw up a Squarespace website. And we um, started meeting companies. One of the companies we met was Outer, O-U-T-E-R. And you can visit their website, live, L-I-V-E, Outer, O-U-T-E-R.com. And we said, this is an amazing company. And we were able to get a small allocation and invest in the company. Uh, And we thought it was an amazing idea. Uh, We like direct to consumer companies. I thought I'd bring Jake Liu on the um, podcast to talk about what he's doing with Outer because D to C is really hard direct to consumer. This is like Dollar Shave Club, right? Uh, This was this phenomenon where we would sell products directly to customers and get rid of, uh, you know, the distribution and the marketing and everything in between the customer and the product and maybe make products that were so transcendent and different that people would be drawn to them, right? Uh, And that's what Outer is. And Jake Liu, welcome to the program. How are you? Thank you, Jason. I'm doing well. Glad to be here. So you heard my little preamble about the uh, remote demo day and raising money during the pandemic. You were able to raise your Series A from Sequoia. Did that start right before the pandemic? You had met them already and then you closed it during the pandemic. Is that correct? So a uh, quick correction, we raised from Sequoia, China. Um, China. Uh, right. But uh, we did uh, just announce the funding actually two days ago. But as you know, we closed that uh, in October of 2020. Um yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we actually didn't know, uh, them before. Uh, they reached out to us when we did our seed announcement, uh, funding announcement in June, which was the round led by Mucker Capital here in LA. Um, and, uh, you know, that conversation went really well. And three months later, uh, we closed around with them. And explain to the audience what Outer is and why you started it. Yeah. So Outer is, uh, the first authentic consumer brand for outdoor living. And we are starting 
with the first product, which is the perfect outdoor living uh, outdoor sofa. Uh, we like to call it to be as comfortable as your bed, as durable as your camping gear, and uh, it's completely 100% eco-friendly, recyclable. It also has this patented design. We just got the patent granted about a month ago. Um, that That's this thing called outer shell. Um, it's basically integrated piece of cover that's built into the cushion itself to cover the cushion when it's not in use easily, right, with one hand. And so you get to enjoy your your, out, your outdoor time without the hassle of rain covers or a wet cushion. Um, we're starting with the sofa, but we're quickly expanding, you know, our product categories into outdoor rugs. This year, we're coming up with a slew of exciting outdoor furniture products. Um, but we're on our way to create the, the 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 number one outdoor living brand in the world. How did you come upon this space <clears throat> of outdoor furniture and there being a potential opportunity there and the D to C space? So um, I don't come from furniture uh, background at all. Uh, in fact, I'm a computer engineer, um, and I built a company before this in the enterprise SaaS space. So as far as away, away from consumer and furniture as you can imagine. Uh, yet I have uh, a cousin uh, who owns a patio furniture manufacturer, and he's been his business has been you know uh, booming over the last decade, and. I actually helped him in 2016 build uh, uh, a uh, store on Wayfair and Amazon that turned out to be one of the fastest growing, you know, uh, vendors on Wayfair. And I saw that, you know, there's a lot of potential in this space. Um, and the problem was that the product that they offered wasn't differentiated at all. It's the same product you can find from Costco, Home Depot, some of these like lower end, you know, we call them disposable furniture now at Outer uh, because they totally are. <laughs> you just use them for a year or two and you have to throw them away. Um, and recognize that there's an opportunity to to build a brand in the space because there's just so many inherent problems that we can probably go into. What we've seen in direct-to-consumer is that if the product is really transcendent and the marketing is really um, clever, then there's a really good chance for a great outcome in terms of connecting with customers and as a business. Is that your experience as well, that in order to win at D2C, the product has to be differentiated uh, and you have to have some sort of marketing approach, a go-to market approach that is either unique or world-class. Totally. I mean, once upon a time, you know, you could definitely go to Alibaba, find some products, repackage it, build a really shiny website, turn on your Facebook, you know, faucet, and there you go. You can build a probably a couple million dollars, uh, you know, business that way. Um, but as customer acquisition costs go up on Facebook, Google, all of these channels, there isn't really that arbitrage on you know, um, marketing anymore. So mm. I do think fundamentally it is about business fundamentals, right? Customers only care about differentiated products that are better than incumbents, uh, not just with the shiny coat. Um, and so we take us, for example, you know, we, um, uh, we spent, I think 14 months on just the fabrics of our sofa. We basically said that there's no fabrics out there in the market. Everybody knows umbrella. Everybody knows some of these other performance outdoor fabrics, but they don't meet our uh, requirements when it comes to comfort, durability, and eco-friendliness, especially the, the, the third eco-friendliness component. And so we decided to set out to kind of find our own yarn suppliers, <laughs> really to understand how fabrics are woven and made, and it iterated on a lot. And... Uh, and that turned out to be a very differentiated offering. Um, and so it's wineproof. You can pour coffee on it. We have a video on YouTube of uh, uh, us pouring black coffee on this white, uh, you know, fabrics and it just wipes right off with water. And so 
Um, I do think it's detailed product uh, decisions like that that can really build a brand uh, in 2021. And, and that requires understanding the product in market over time and constantly iterating, correct? Like you have to understand where this product lives outdoors, in the rain, in the sun. And that is, you know, when anybody who's bought outdoor furniture before knows this pattern of like, you buy outdoor furniture, it gets stained, you buy expensive covers, they get stained, you cover them. <laughs> and, and then you stop using your furniture because it's covered and the it's arduous to take all the covers off, put all the covers back on. It's just it becomes like um, an annoyance, right? Uh, and then you wind up buying stuff that doesn't have sofas because you want just benches and then those are uncomfortable, you don't use them. I, I've been through this like being a you know, California boy for the last uh, decade or so <laughs> more now. Yeah, getting close to two decades. It's just a lot of work, outdoor furniture, correct? That's right. I mean, I grew up in Alabama uh, and, you know, outdoor living is a thing, you know, tailgating. Uh, everyone has a yard. Um, and obviously, having moved to LA for almost a decade, you know, outdoor living is definitely like a lifestyle over here. It's just so nice today. It's actually like balmy today. It's like has been really cold. But yeah, I mean, totally. It's all of these uh, kind of... It's like waking up in the morning, you have a coffee in hand, you want to go outside, just sit down at your couch, right? And you have to now put your coffee down, remove this huge rain tarp that's probably covered in dust and bird poop, and you don't want to touch it. And then, and then, and then, you know, and then after you do it, the, the cushion is still damp, you know, from the dew, and you yep. sit on it without knowing that, and you, your, your yep. butt is wet. <laughs> we yeah. call it now the wet you gotta go change sequence. your underwear, change your pants. You it's it. a disaster. It's a disaster. Yeah, yeah. And the cover that you guys came up with is so clever because it was designed to be easy to use, right? You just flip it right over. Boom, you're done. Just like a laptop lid, one hand. So coffee in hand or phone on the other hand, you can just use one hand and open it up. It Even after it closes, like in, in, the, in the clamshell format, it has a little handle because if there's a torrential rain that's come, rainstorm that's coming, you can just pick up all the cushions in one go instead of stacking them up, stacking them up like pizza boxes and, mm. you know. So it's... Uh, that is definitely the number one. We have like a looping animation of outer shell in action. It's like a five yes. second animation. It went viral on Instagram. Uh, and I think everybody relates to that pain point. It does. There is something about marketing on social media where if you make a nice GIF or you make a nice looped video, it can really pull people in. And, and this is, I love this escalation of excellence that's occurred. Everybody is looking, whether it's you with outdoor furniture or Eight Sleep, one of our investments that is working on beds, you know, they just sit there all day long and they go, how can we make sleeping, you know, how can we get people better sleep through this product? <laughs> I mean, they're literally doing that with software and, you know, hardware and just the design of the app and everything. When we get back, um, I want to go into the next piece, which is you have a very unique go-to-market strategy that I'm not sure how well it works. But when I saw it, I was just like, wow, that is such a brilliant idea. Whoever came up with that idea has to be brilliant. Therefore, it makes it a great investment when we get back with Jake Lou on This Week in Startups. Listen, 2020 was a crazy, hectic, insane year. My God, it was like a decade in a year. And there was a lot of uncertainty, let's face it. But we're going to minimize our uncertainty in 2021, and we are going to start the Roaring 20s. So let's switch to a smooth and painless payroll and HR system. Gusto is that system. And it wasn't just built for small businesses. It was built for the people behind them. That's you and me. Their online payroll is so easy to use. Gusto can automatically calculate paychecks and file all your payroll taxes. Easy peasy. 
Three out of four customers say they run their payroll in 10 minutes or less, which means you can get back to your business. Heidi, who manages operations here at launch, she says Gusto frees her up to do more business critical tasks like running our syndicate. They offer unlimited payrolls for one monthly price. There are no hidden fees and they help with time tracking. A lot of people need to do that. Health insurance, critically important. 401ks, be generous with your employees. Onboarding, commuter benefits, offer letters, access to HR experts, and more. And if you're moving from another provider, Gusto is going to transfer all your data for you. No surprise, 94% of customers are likely to recommend Gusto to a friend. Of course they are, because it's so easy. Here's the best part. Because you're a Twist listener, you're going to get three months totally free. All you have to do is go to gusto.com slash twist. That's G-U-S-T-O dot com slash twist. Welcome back to This Week in Startups. Our guest today is Jake Liu from Outer, and you can visit them at L-I-V-E-O-U-T-E-R dot com. Sofas are pretty affordable. What is a, you know, a, a sofa setup cost typically? So our um, a, a three-seater sofa is about $3,500. So it's not um, a cheap product in, in, any, in any sense, but there's a lot of value if you shop at Restoration Hardware. If you want to get non-disposable furniture, like I, we mentioned earlier, where you have to yeah. replace every two years, we warranty it up for 10 years, right? It's a very, very worthwhile inv- investment because one, it's going to last you 10 years, and two, you're going to be using it every day instead of you know once every two, two, two weeks or something like that. Yeah. And so it's not the cheapest, but it is the best and it's going to last for a long time and you can feel good about it because it's using sustainable uh, materials and building. But you came up with a really good idea for showrooming and for your go to market explain your showrooming idea and how that's worked in practice. Has it actually worked? And if so, what percentage of your sales are driven by it? Yeah, um, I mean, the punchline here is it does actually work. Um, okay, good. And, uh, <laughs> Explain what it is. <laughs> yeah, so uh, our concept that you're alluding to, Jason, is called neighborhood showroom. And so the you can understand it as Airbnb meets retail, right? Where instead of our customers going to a furniture store, you are going to an actual customer, a real customer's backyard to experience the per- uh, product in person. And so... You know, we, we launched this concept in May of 2019 along the launch with our company. And in the beginning, we were really just doing pilot tests in LA. We were asking, are people crazy enough to list up their out, you know, backyards on a, on, on our website? Um, turned out, yes, a lot of people were really interested. Uh, mainly, I think because, you know, potential visitors don't, they don't even have to go into your living room, right? Typically, you have like a back, like a back entrance or like a side gate. And um, people really enjoy just meeting their neighbors and, you know, connecting over their shared love of outdoor living. And it really provides potential customers a way, especially, you know, for a DTC brand like ours, you know, who don't have distribution and retail footprint to then, you know, leverage their five senses to see, touch, feel the product in person before them uh, making their purchase decision online. So fast forward, you know, two years, uh, almost two years now. We are in uh, close to 500 uh, locations uh, since, uh, you know, since I pitched you, Jason, in, I think uh, in August, you know, we probably doubled that number and then we are on, on, on track to double that yet again to hit a thousand showrooms uh, actually well before the summer. Uh, and we, we hope to emerge as the number one and the biggest crowdsourced retail platform in the U.S. 
what did do, do they get a percentage of every sale they do? So is it become like a business for them? Or do they just get a discount on when they do the showrooming? It's a good question. Everybody asks that I think, you know, it's really easy to draw analogy to uh, MLM models, right? Mm. Like the, the Herbalives and the Amways and the Mary Kays of the world. We were really careful in the beginning to not cross that line, because that doesn't provide the best customer experience, right? Mm. Uh, it's really pushy. And it's kind of awkward, you're inviting your friends, but you're trying to sell them something. So so to answer your question, no, we don't pay commission. We pay mm. a flat fee per visit, anywhere from twenty to fifty dollars, depending on where you are, your availability, and all of those components that we have built a system to qualify. Um, and uh, it's really just paying for your time and your space. And got it. The- so if somebody comes and looks at it, you just give them twenty bucks. You said, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if you buy or not. Yeah, we give them the flat. So fee. what is the um, most number of visits somebody's had in a week? Has somebody had like? 10 visits in a week and, you know, or five? That's a, yeah, good question. I got to look it up. Um, I think probably 10 is about the right number, right? Like we don't intend to turn our homes, like our customers home into retail stores. I think the neighbors right. will start complaining, like people just yeah. going in and out and parking, right? Yeah. Uh, it's meant to be a very flexible, like very mm. at will, you know, like meeting someone. Yeah, they have, they have to go through the scheduling process and they can vet each other. They can communicate beforehand. If people book like Rover, for example, like dock sitting, it's kind of like a very similar experience. Um, because you have to find out like what time you want to go, right? It's not like Airbnb mm-hmm. where it's just like dates because you're just going to be there for 15 minutes. Right. So, um, um, yeah, so they, they, they host that. Albeit, you know, during the pandemic, we've, uh, paused the physical visits because we definitely don't want people to feel uncomfortable and we don't want to be mm-hmm. liable for that. And so we pivoted into kind of like a virtual, um, format where, you know, yes, you can't go and physically see touch and feel, but, the one thing that a lot of our customers really care about is answering this one top line question, which is, will the outer sofa work in, in my city, right? You name your city mm-hmm. because you're in San Francisco. I'm in LA. Uh, you know, someone else may be in Maine and New York City, Miami. All of those places are very different. And so all they want to know is, okay, this, this clearly works in California because you're a California company, but does it work in the humid environments of Miami? I want to see if my neighbors have it, right? And so mm-hmm. even if it's virtual, it kind of answers that question is like, okay, wow, there's a lot of showrooms near me and it seems like the product works well and I can talk to the host in this case, the customer, and to get their candid feedback over the phone call, text, or email. How's the, so the pandemic does impact this. How does the pandemic impact uh, building and shipping uh, and inventorying all this product? Because I've heard that, and I don't know if it's true, but during the early days of the pandemic, supply chains were obviously impacted, but that seems to have been worked out. In, in general, what's the state of manufacturing? I'm assuming you're manufacturing in China. That's right. So my family factory is, is in China. And yeah, so in I think in, uh, if you remember, China got really hit really hard in December, January. So December 2019 and January of, uh, of, of uh, 2020. And so there was a pause of uh, manufacturing around like February or so, but it quickly resumed, I think, by the end of March. Uh, what followed was really some back, you know, backed up, uh, you know, ocean freight and logistics here, here stateside and actually just, uh, between China and the U.S. But, you know, I, I think all things considered, things are back to normal except for the, the ocean freight part. Uh, apparently, you know, 
a lot of containers due to COVID, rampant COVID here in LA, specifically the LA Long Beach port, all the containers got backed up and you just uh-huh. can't get the empty containers go back to Asia to, to, to get more stuff out. Oh, that's fascinating. Yes. And that, that's always been the problem is getting all of those empty containers back. And Long Beach is the largest port in America, I believe. And it's one of the largest in the world. I mean, not compared to China. Um, and people are spending more time at home. And people were moving a whole bunch during the pandemic. I'm guessing people being at home and people spending more time at home and people wanting to spend more time outdoors because the virus doesn't spread outdoors as much would be like three different factors causing your sales to spike. Number one, people are spending more time at home. Number two, they need to spend more time outdoors. And number three, they have more time on their hands because there's less to do, right? Then you can, that should translate in some way to either watching more Netflix or doing more shopping. So did sales boom because of the pandemic? It definitely did. I mean, we, we noticeably saw, you know, um, uh, a huge spike uh, in from from March to May, kind of like in the beginning when the uh, one of the uh, like when San Francisco ordered the shelter in at home, and then LA ensued, and you know all the uh, cities that followed. Um, and yeah, it's due to those reasons that you mentioned. Also, like the e-commerce penetration, you know, mm. have gone from what what was it like thirteen percent to like twenty seven percent in a matter of three months. It's like five months of e-commerce. Uh, five years of e-commerce penetration like that happened over five months, right? And so that's definitely, definitely tailwind and as well as our retail competitors, the Pottery Barns, the RHs of the world are shutting down their doors, right? And so right. um, all of those yeah, factors and if you look at like Home Depot, right? Um, <laughs> that's just a good indication. People are trying to do more DIY, remodeling their backyards and they're just trying to make their home more of like a safe haven and you know, so more comfortable and all of that. So we we definitely benefit from all of those uh, tailwinds. Yeah, that is something that specifically happened, you know, in Los Angeles, I noticed that when I lived in New York City, uh, Manhattan and Brooklyn, there was a big focus on going out, right? You had small mm. apartments and you went out, much like living in Tokyo or Paris or other places. London, it was more about what you did when you left your house than when you're at your house, your house was for sleeping and taking hmm. a shower and maybe storing your clothes <laughs> and everything else <laughs> occurred outside of your house. But when I moved to Los Angeles, I was shocked that people had screening rooms in their house and multiple seating areas outdoors and a guest house and a gym in their house or converted their garage or one of their parking spaces into a gym. Everything was about staying home. And that's one of the things that during the pandemic, I think has spread as a trend across the entire uh, country and perhaps the world. I don't know, but in America, it seems like people are like, wow, I need to have a compound, like even a mini compound, right? Turning your 2000 square foot home into a compound so you can have an extra office and clearing out the garage and putting two desks in there or whatever. Uh, do you think this, this trend sticks with us after the pandemic uh, wanes and uh, you have insight into China and what's going on there post pandemic? Or do you think people go back to cities and city life becomes as it always was? Yeah. Answer that um, question when we get back from this quick break on This Week in Startups. Do you ever wish you got to invest in these incredible IPOs in 2019 or 2020? Well, 
are crowd investors did invest early in many of these awesome IPOs. We're seeing people were able to wet their beaks uh, from the R crowd community. And at R crowd, accredited investors can invest directly and easily. And that's super important in startups early before the IPO or before they get bought. Our crowd investors have benefited from companies IPOing like Beyond Meat. What an incredible IPO that was. And some of the companies from our crowd have been acquired by buyers like Intel, Nike, Microsoft and Oracle. Their in-depth due diligence includes meeting with the management teams of these companies and comprehensive vetting of deals they decide to invest in. Accredited investors can participate in single company deals for as little as $10,000 each time or one of our crowds funds for as little as $50,000. And I can tell you those minimums are a magnitude less than if you were trying to go direct and you would have to vet it and you'd have to do due diligence and you probably wouldn't get access to the deals. That's why you want to be part of a community like our crowd. Today, you can join our crowds investment in future family, the fintech innovator removing the cost and complexity barriers of fertility care as they transform the rapidly growing multi billion dollar fertility care industry future families products give everyone the opportunity to build the family of their dreams you can get in early on future family and other unique opportunities at rcrowd.com slash twist once again go ahead and open a free account at rcrowd.com slash twist o-u-r-c-r-o-w-d.com slash twist welcome back to this week in startups jake lou is here he's from outer I'm an investor, got to put a little bit of money in, I squeaked into that last round, you can go buy uh, a bunch of outer stuff. It's incredible liveouter.com L I V E O U T E R.com. I do not have a showroom at my house. So don't show up at my house. I was thinking about it. Uh, <laughs> I invested in this company right after I bought a bunch of outdoor Italian furniture, which costs twice as much. And I'm just kicking myself because it's just not even as good. Before we went to break, I was asking you about do you think people are going to be going back to city life and you have a bunch of uh, insights into China? You grew up in China, correct? When did you? Yep, I was born and grew up in Shenzhen. Oh, in Shenzhen? That is yeah. so funny. I went to Shenzhen in um, 15 years ago, 2005, maybe to ask my wife's dad, if I could marry her. And he was in Shenzhen oh. and going to Shenzhen in 2005. There was only there was only one hotel really. And we all got there and the place was completely under construction. There would be five blocks of just empty parking garages and then a 20-story building, then two <laughs> blocks and then a 30-story building. And everybody went to bed the night we got there and I couldn't sleep. So I just went downstairs and I was like, what can I do? And there was a um, amusement park and I went to it alone. And there were a bunch of school kids there. I was the only white guy there. And all the school kids <laughs> who had come from the north down to Shenzhen had never seen a white person before, an American. And they swarmed me to take pictures and wanted to touch my hair and like stand next to me and were smiling. It was, I mean, talk a little bit about how Shenzhen, which was the first autonomous economic zone. Is that how they refer yeah, to it? Yeah, you got it. it. Yeah, it was the first autonomous. So what was growing up in Shenzhen like and what has Shenzhen turned into this you know city north of hong kong what is it 90 minutes north of hong kong uh, it borders hong kong it's connected by a bridge so depending on you know from downtown to downtown yeah you could probably you know be there in 90 minutes um yeah i mean Shenzhen is i think is dubbed the fastest growing city in human civilization right I, I, yeah and it's it's kind of amazing to think that even in the early 90s it's just a fishing village 
And what happened was, yeah, they, so the Chinese government dubbed it as the autonomous uh, econ- economic zone, uh, where there's, you know, more free trade. Um, and it does border, you know, uh, the, uh, Pacific Ocean, uh, the south part of, of China, uh, bordering Hong Kong as well. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I moved to Shenzhen. So I was born in, uh, actually closer to Shanghai. So like, uh, ah. kind of like the southeastern part, but I moved to Shenzhen when I was maybe like five, um, to attend elementary school. When I was there, you know, uh, it already was pretty modernized. I think it's probably the most modernized city in 1995 with skyscrapers. People were driving European cars, and I remember Shanghai, like you're no, no, Shenzhen. In Shenzhen, yeah, it was the most American, yep. except for Hong Kong, maybe. Probably, yeah, of yeah. mainland China. Yeah, it was like two years before Hong Kong returned to China from the British rule. Um, so a lot of it, yeah, was kind of like mimicking Hong Kong, um, and. Yeah, I mean, I went to elementary school there, just seeing skyscrapers literally going up uh, every weekend, it seems like, you know, it was pretty crazy. The man-made tallest lakes. building in China, man-made yeah. lakes, like the overpass. I mean, I, I, I think there was just like an overpass that just appeared out of nowhere in front of my home, like, you know, over a weekend. Uh, you know, it's just like it's this crazy. crazy stuff like that. And I left Shenzhen in 2002 and I went back, uh, you know, a few times, but every time I go back, like, just, I just cannot... It's like they the layered city. another city every time you go back, right? Yeah, it's like, like it goes vertically. New- and Its yeah. population since I went there has doubled from 6.5 million to 13 million in 2000 to 2020. I mean, it's yeah. pretty amazing. Um, it's a fun city the, too. I mean, now it's a, you know, a lot of good now? food. Yeah. It's a lot the of food fun. Was yeah, the nightlife yeah. is great. Food is amazing. It's kind of like an immigrant city like LA. Like a lot of people just go to Shenzhen yes. for... Uh, you know, opportunities, you know, like Foxconn's over there, have like 60,000 employees in their compound over there. And so it's, and obviously Tencent, all the technology, it's kind of like the Silicon Valley of China, right? Yeah, uh, it's a very cool, so. and then north of it is a thing called Mission Hills Golf Club. And I, I've told the story before on the pod, but have you ever been to the Mission Hills Golf Club north of the city? I have not. So my father-in-law takes me there, uh, and he, the owner of Mission Hills is his friend and uh, we have this like incredible, you know how they, they do, you know, a dignitary dinner or lunch in China, you know, like bringing out all this incredible Multi-hour event. <laughs> yeah. And we're, and we're, you know, hitting golf balls. And I asked him like, what, how did this become like um, a golf course? And he said to me, oh, like, uh, you know, Yosemite. And I was like, Yosemite, I don't know what you mean. And he's like, in America, like Yosemite, like, I was like, you mean like a national park? He's like, yeah, this was a national park. I was like, how did it become, it literally is a 12-course golf club. So wow. there are 216 holes. And I think they had five or six courses at the time built out. So they now, they're now up to 12. So imagine 216-hole golf course. In other words, it's 12 golf courses put together into one club. And he said, uh, yeah, you know, I, I used to run the, the um, park the national park and then they transferred into this <laughs> crazy huge you know golf course it's it's something to see uh the scale of things in china is just insane so people in shanghai people in shenzhen are back to normal life correct yep as of uh i mean june of last year people were back to work uh you know people partying already i'm seeing all my friends in beijing i, I think it's spiking up a little bit because of the winter over there but yeah mm-hmm. i mean uh, for all intents and purposes back to normal life wow and so they've just figured out a way to track and trace right that's how they solved is everybody has phones if you have an outbreak 
And do they test everybody constantly at parties or at jobs and factories? Are they doing like mass testing? How do they get control of it, do you think? Yeah, I think it was the really swift action in the beginning by mm. the uh, the central government, but, but probably the local governments too, to basically contain, uh, contain the the spread. Um, mm. There was like a very strict lockdown, if you remember, in Wuhan, yeah. right, where nobody can leave the city. And I do think it's that really intense, uh, you know, like uh, lockdown that that have uh, opened up the city. Uh, you know, I think less than five months after mm. its outbreak. Um, and so, yeah, I mean. I mean, probably, there's probably like a philosophical debate here, you know, whether it's like safety and freedom, but I can tell you that, you know, all my friends in China are pretty happy that they were locked down for a few months and now they can enjoy normal life. Whereas, you know, we're kind of locked down here still, um, but hopefully the vaccine can take hold. Yeah. And it, it, the two countries that are doing the best jobs with the vaccines or the three, China, United States, and then Israel, Israel on a percentage basis, but on a raw number basis. Both China and the United States have done over 10 million vaccinations at the time we taped this in the 13th month of 2020, January 2021. Uh, and we are now doing 700,000 a day, which when we hit a million, two million a day, we'll be having 1% of the population basically getting on the other side of this. So it feels mm -hmm. like this could come back, but they're all back to normal life. We'll be back to normal life. And then we'll see what the, the trends are uh, yep. moving forward. But it's been very weird some companies in our portfolio have done dramatically better during mm -hmm. the pandemic and in some cases because of the pandemic you're obviously in that in that bucket how have you dealt with hiring people and how do you look at running the company now that you basically have raised all this money and had this massive growth spur in a pandemic where you can't meet with people and have a central office i assume it's probably the the number one thing that I'm thinking right now as we, you know, close the funding and we're in massive hiring mode. And, you know, look, we, we scaled from 10 to 30 people in 2020. And I haven't met most of my, my team members um, so <laughs> and, you know, in, in real life. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the, I would say that, you know, one thing for, for, for us is that my co-founder, Terry, he's actually in San Francisco. Um, and so from day one, we developed this remote work culture. So we worked really well across Zoom and Slack. And so that actually was a pretty natural transition for us, even when we started working from home in March of last year. Um, but I, you know, onboarding people, interviewing people, it's all done through Zoom. I mean, if we could, we do like a social distance meeting there in LA. But one thing that's positive out of this is that we now have I think two team members out of Tennessee, you know, a couple people from the Bay Area, a person from San Diego. We have two, uh, three people in Argentina. We have two people in China. So everybody feels, even though they're remote, but everybody feels like they're under the same roof, right? Because like, even if you're in LA, you're meeting over Zoom. So Right. See, that is the key. If everybody has to be on Zoom, we all have the same amount of screen real estate. When you're in that gallery view, and True. you know it's uh, whatever three by three or you know four by four however big your organization is everybody gets kind of the same amount of real estate and so it does create one class of employee of team member as opposed to when you had the headquarters folks or the folks who were in the you know main conference room but then everybody else is dialing in the people dialing yep. in are kind of forgotten about right like they're kind of like right. ah, second class citizens they're they're not you know, in the halls of power sitting next to the CEO or the CFO or the chief product officer, whoever it is. And yeah, now everybody and so but you're able to hire faster, right? You because you're not looking for people just in Los Angeles. 
the concept of this horrible discussion you had to have about the commute and the hours people work and people saying, Oh my God, like I got to commute. And do I really want to take, I'm down in Redondo beach. Oh, I'm in Venice. Oh, I'm on, I'm in downtown LA. Do I have to come to the office? This whole uncomfortable conversation goes away. When we get back from this quick break, you're an active angel investor. I want to understand how you balance angel investing with running your company. Uh, congratulations on being in Steezy, one of our great companies as well, the dance company. Go Steezy. Great. Yeah, go Steezy. They're crushing it. Uh, what do you get out of it? And then how do you keep it from becoming a distraction uh, when we get back on this week in startups? Why is SOC 2 compliance critically important? You hear it all the time. SOC 2, SOC 2. Well, if you don't have your SOC 2 buttoned up, you can't close major companies as partners and as customers. It's that simple. And guess what? Vanta is going to give you $1,000 off your Vanta compliance uh, process. And this is something that's very important. What they're going to do when you get your SOC 2 with Vanta is they're going to continually test against technical and non-technical SOC 2 requirements. And they also have partnered with over two dozen audit firms who have been trained to file SOC 2 reports directly in Vanta. On average, the Vanta customers get their SOC 2 compliance in just two, three, four weeks. Compare that with three, four, or five months without Vanta, and you understand why everybody's going crazy about it. I just had a twisted listener, uh, John, email me. He's got the drone startup, Kitty Hawk. You may have heard of them. They're very famous. And uh, he says Vanta was essential in helping them get SOC to compliance up and running. Uh, and he loves their tie-ins to Google, Slack, GitHub, and AWS, which are all essential apps that run Kitty Hawk's awesome business. Vanta, again, is giving Twist listeners a $1,000 discount on their subscription right now. And I know many of you are taking advantage of it. V-A-N-T-A.com slash twist, Vanta.com slash twist for $1,000 off. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. Welcome back to This Week in Startups. Our guest today is Jake Liu from Outer Go Buy uh, Sofa at liveouter.com, L-I-V-E-O-U-T-E-R.com. Uh, I don't get a commission on it, but I am an investor. Uh, so my beak has been wet. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're angel investing. Tell me, how did you get into angel investing? And then how often do you invest? How much time does it take for you? And then how do you balance it against running your own company? Yeah, so I uh, am uh, a very amateur angel investor. Um, I got a little bit better after reading your book, which is, as you can see, it's in the background right here. Um and uh, we, I got into it, it's probably just serendipity. I think uh, Steezy was actually one of the first deals that I did. And it was brought, brought to me by uh, uh, Vince, who you're, you, you know as well, who sits on the board oh, of yeah, Steezy. Vince, yeah. And yeah, uh, Vince Thompson. And it was when they were just, you know, uh, a team of four, I think. And uh, they were, I think, at 20,000. MRR is kind of very early, and now, as you know, they've they've skyrocketed. Incredible. Um, and I just was just really, I, I think I just got done building my previous company, and I really loved their passion. I mean, I think Evan, um, CEO, was a, a developer at another company, and then Connor, uh, the co-founder CMO, uh, was working at a marketing agency, and but they were both passionate, you know, hip hop dancers, and they were like in a professional team that won awards and stuff like that. And like hearing them talk about the business, like there's nothing else they would be doing with their life besides building Steezy. Like it's it's their life's mission. Even nobody funded them, that's what they would do. And I was really moved by that. And I, you know, I was like, well, I don't have a lot of money to invest, but how can I? you know, get involved. I mean, this, this energy is infectious. And I think that's how I got into angel investing. And I think that philosophy of just 
learning from so i'm learning a lot from evans and connor even though we're in different you know kind of like spaces um but it's just that cross-pollination of ideas and i tell them that you know hey i'm not gonna i can't write a big check but i can talk to you as a founder i'm in the trenches with you i'm in a lot of cases maybe only a few months ahead of you if if any and you know you can be really candid with me i'm not in it for financial reasons necessarily i really just want to learn i want to you know help out and so I think it's been, I don't think it's been a distraction in the sense that I really do appreciate like cross industry um, conversations and it just doesn't, it, it kind of broadens my horizon a little bit, kind of learning about like logistics and in the world of B2B, in the world of, um, you know, in the case uh, of a recent startup that I invested in, um, in uh, property real, you know, property, uh, real estate and tech and all of that, which is actually related to outer what we're doing right because we follow the real estate market um so i'm just really doing i think it's a superpower to fuel my own thinking about how to build my company better um anyway so that's probably like a long how do you keep it from becoming a distraction i mean the fact is you're writing small 10 25k checks i take it yeah so i don't necessarily not that much skin in the game there's no due diligence necessarily. I'm usually, obviously, I'm not yeah. leading, right? So, like, I'm following another investor. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I really just meet the team. Like, I get to, to see them. And then usually the decision is made within, like, a couple of days. And, and if they will take my check, you know, that happens. So, it's not, I don't actively seek out deals, right? It's just, like, if investors come to me, it's like, hey, Jake, what do you think about this? You know, what do you, uh, you know, meet the founders? Um, I do that. And if I can participate, I do it that way. So it's quite passive. Let's talk a little bit about, to the extent you're comfortable with it, um, the relationship between China and the United States. Sure. And, you know, you have Sequoias in China, they're investing. Then you had Trump for four years, seeming to be at odds with China and constantly deriding them and the Wuhan virus and things got really weird. And we've spent all this time kind of integrating our two economies. And obviously, you're kind of like the perfect example of this. You have Sequoia, China investing in a company based in California, the product is made in China, it's sold in America, you are uh, somebody who grew up in China who now lives in America. Tell me what's your take on the relationship between these two great nations? Yeah, it's actually a passionate subject of mine. Um, and it could be touchy, you know, because of politics and the environment that we live in today, unfortunately. But one of the things, I don't know if you've heard about it, Jason, is, uh, this theory called the golden arches, uh, theory. Have you heard of it? Okay. I mean, I know McDonald's golden arches. Uh, that's right. The give me the golden arches in this regard. Yeah. So it's basically the concept, uh, uh, the law that no two countries that have McDonald's have ever gone to war with each other. So another word to say is a capitalistic truce, right? So it's like two capitalist nations are less likely to go into war with each other. I and like this that. is a concept that I think was inspired by the book uh, uh, Homo uh, Homo. Thomas Davians. Friedman um, came up with it. I think I remember this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Golden Arches theory of conflict prevention. Once the co- economies become sufficiently integrated, both costs of going to war and the amount of contact between the two countries will increase. Yeah. That makes That's right. complete sense, yeah. Yeah, so, in, in, you know, in short, uh, war used to be the number one way of getting resources, and that's why, company, uh, that's why countries go to war. Uh, but if there's really healthy commerce relationship, then there's no reason to have bloodshed because you can get what you, what you want by just trading, yeah. right? And so, I am a firm believer in globalization. Um, I do think that's the story of 
human civilization. It's just a story of globalization as we go from our tribes to villages to cities to countries to then Earth, right? Um, and so, yeah. having been someone who grew up born in China and uh, deeply ingrained in that in that society, uh, my wife is from China as well. Uh, and really receive education and, uh, you know, have my career here in the, in the U.S., I feel like I owe both countries and both societies a lot. Um, and I feel, but mm. if you ask me, are you a Chinese person or uh, American citizen? First of all, I'm an American citizen by the passport, but I think of myself more of like a global citizen. Yeah. As in, you know, I, I, I travel between the two countries a lot. I feel like two countries have things right and wrong they have strong strengths and weaknesses and so i do think it's all about how do you have the two of the most powerful nation the biggest economies kind of exist in harmony because there's no other way right because you whether you like it or not it's the two most impactful economies in the world and so all of that is to say you know i i really want to one of the things that drive me uh, at outer is um how do you bridge the gap of understanding, you know, between the two peoples uh, about each other? You know, the concept of made in China used to be derogative because it, it, it implies yeah, cheap, it meant cheaply garbage. made goods. Yeah, it used to be Japan yeah. was like high quality, China was bad quality. Now China right. is, yeah, transcendent quality, right? Like, unbelievable. That's right. I mean, our iPhones are made there. Yeah, and I think and a lot of them the misunderstanding. they built the Tesla Gigafactory in like six months. Yep. <laughs> it's incredible <laughs> the speed at which yeah. they can go. What do China's you think speed. are the things that americans don't understand that are virtuous about china the chinese people the, the the way the country operates and what do you think china gets wrong about the united states having you know you are the golden arches yourself right in your family you're 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 the perfect manifestation of it what what does each country and people not understand about the other that they should understand about the yeah. other that that is yeah. they can learn from each other Imagine someone who grew up in a very um, affluent community, right? And they have a wealthy upbringing and they have all the resources they, they want. They, they got a really good education and they met someone who struggled through, you know, their, their youth and their childhood and maybe come into, you know, uh, making some money. And, you know, when they talk to each other, you know, you, it's easy for the former person to look down on the other. Um, I think China, mm. you know, I, I think it's important to keep in mind that China, even like I said, like Shenzhen in the early 90s was a fishing village. Mm. This was 30 years ago. Yeah. I was born in 18, 1989, you know, so it's almost that time. So it's like China just quickly risen to the number two economy in the world. Um, and so there are a lot of things that they don't have the, the, the fundament, the fundamentals of, uh, you know, uh, like the, the American economy and that's built uh, through generations. Right. And so, um, right. I do think, you know, you asked me what American people get wrong about China. It's that I think at the end of the day, people just want better lives for themselves, for their families. Right. I think that's a universal yes. Yes. value. Um, and you know, we won't talk about governments here, but like just the, the people, I mean, there, there's no, I guess, like bad intentions, I think in, in both, uh, in both cases, but it does, you know, make sense to think from their perspective of like, what was your upbringing like? You know, in my case, I didn't grow up in a very affluent family and I witnessed kind of like uh, the, the transition of a, a country that was looked down upon up then up to like global uh, economy. And so, um, but the the negative of that is that now that China is is, uh, is a you know a big economy, then we 
as Americans probably, you know, ask them to do a lot of things that they just can't do overnight, right? Like environmental issues. Right. LA in the 60s and 70s, it was the, one of the most polluted cities in the world. And then they were able to clean that up, right? right? China, I think, right. and India, actually, were, I think, the two of the countries that made most environmental improvements in the last five years or something. They planted most trees, green greeneries. Um, they're now able to start investing a lot more into that. And so, the growing pain, right? It's like, if you go, have to go through industrial revolution again, like, you have to, yeah. Yeah, no, I think I, we're very quick in the United States to look at the growing pains of another country and say, hey, you should be where we are by now. And then other, we don't take a minute to say, well... How long did it take us to get to this level of democracy or how did it take us to get to this level of environmental awareness or worker protections, whatever it is, um, there's an incredible documentary that I saw a decade ago called Last Train Home. I'm, I'm sure you've seen it. Have you seen it? Last Train Home? I the have documentary? not. I got a... Oh, well, I mean, it it's it's going to confirm a lot of stuff you already know, but highly recommend it for folks because it, it talks and this is obviously very dated now because a decade in China time is like we're talking about here. It might be like 40 or 50 years of change that occurred uh, in American time. But it's just about, you know, over 100,000 people going home for the new year in the spring, right? And all the factory workers would go back north to the farmland where they previously had worked um, and see their families and this idea of getting oh. that last train home for the new yeah. year, and then coming back. And what you what I felt in that documentary, and listen, it's but one point of view was the the, the middle class in China, was reminded me very much of, you know, what I've heard about the middle class emerging here, where the idea of getting to have a car, or your own apartment, or to be able to go to a restaurant, uh, or a club with your friends or have a vacation to, you know, a lot of Chinese would go to Australia, right for vacation or to New Zealand, like the idea of taking a proper vacation, uh, or, or being able to buy uh, something you covet, like a, a handbag or a car. Um, it was really meaningful for people, right? And, and, we forget that many of the people who are going to work in these factories, we're concerned about them. But a lot of them were like, wow, this is a lot better having this apartment or even living in a dormitory. Well, this dormitory has heat and running hot water. And they show like people were literally coming from farms that had a spigot for a village of cold water for everybody to share, right? And no heat. Like this is an incredible change in lifestyle, an amazing upgrade of going from living, you know, in a very rural setting with very little resources to 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 living in a very modern lifestyle, right? Yeah, totally. And, you know, I think um, if, if, you know, if Korea and Japan, which you mentioned, were any indication, uh, even Germany, many people didn't know that in the 20s, Germany, mm -hmm. German engineering wasn't known worldwide as the epitome of engineering. It was a group mm -hmm. of engineers that came together and said, we want to change that, you know, for the better. Um, and mm. Japanese electronics in the 60s, they were looked down upon, right? Um, and yeah, now they were they considered are, kind of like disposable, right? Before Sony. Sure. Yeah. And and Korean cars, right? It's another good example with Hyundai and like uh, Kia. Yep. I think, it, you know, the next decade in 2020, whether we like it or not, you know, Chinese manufacturing, Chinese made goods are undergoing the same sort of transition transformation from this cheaply made goods to something that's high quality. Um, and that's, you know, they have differentiated products and offerings and innovation, right? The, the idea of us copying, even the tech world, that's a perfect example. We, it used to be China copying everything from the US. And there is now the reverse, which is true, is TikTok, take for example, right? Like, like Silicon Valley is copying right. from China in a lot of ways, especially in the consumer tech world, because it just iterates so quickly in that market. And so 
I do think there's still a lot for the two countries to learn from each other and industries in general. And that's one of the core reasons why we raised um, uh, partner web with Sequoia China is because we have so much to learn from China. And, you know, I do think that the, the bridge between the, the, the two countries, you know, if I can be a small part of that and make a very, very tiny dent in improving the understanding, especially in the tech world, um, you know, that's, uh, that would be my, my, my mission. Yeah. For, with, without her. Yeah. And, and if you, if you just look at the average hour, hourly salary of a factory worker in China, you know, it was under a dollar up until, you know, 2006, and then quickly went to $2 in 2010. I'm not sure what the hourly rate of a factory worker in China is today. I think it's $4 or something. Um, do you know? Uh, it's about like, it, it, I don't think there's like a minimum salary, uh, but it's definitely like in the 4 to $5 yeah. range, if not higher. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's really uh, changed over time. And that means that other places, whether it's Sri Lanka or Vietnam or other countries, yep. are actually now... India, Pakistan might be cheaper or competitive, right? They are. Yep. Totally. They're cheaper. And they are cheaper. And that's why a lot of manufacturing, and this including tariff as well. That's why a lot of manufacturing is going to Southeast Asia. Um, and so Chinese manufacturers, including my cousin's factory, they know they can't just compete on labor cost. It is about innovation. It is about creating better products. They have to go through that oh. manufacturing upgrade. That's fascinating when you think about it. Over 30 or 40 years, you, China has gone from being the cheapest to nowhere near the cheapest, and they now have to compete on something, uh, move up the stack, right? So innovation, quality, brand, they have to add something more to the table. This is the story. If we were looking at the, if we looked at the planet as, you know, an ecosystem, as you were saying, one people all moving towards some goal, it's almost like each country kind of um, gets an opportunity to take this work and ride it to a better outcome for all their citizens, right? And I think that's something that as politicians fight over stuff, we can take the win of people, the, the number of people living in poverty is going down in the, in the world and the quality of life and the average salary is going way up. We may not feel that in America. We may not feel that when we're on Instagram and we're comparing the best moments in a rich person's life to, you know, the everyday moments in our lives, it may feel like a big, um, a big disparity. But in fact, it's, it's the entire world is removing uh, people living in abject poverty, people living under a dollar a day, I think it's under a billion people now are living in abject poverty now. And in our lifetime, it'll go to zero or close to it. Yeah, which is yeah. just amazing to think about what capitalism has I done. Know. The idea of people living for under a dollar a day will go away. It is extraordinary. That's a, we can take that win as in this messy process, we can take that win. All right. Uh, in terms of Chinese food, can we talk about Chinese food for a minute? Totally. Ro I, I roast pork, Peking duck, Shanghai dumplings, uh, roast whole pig. Go ahead and rank for me. Peking duck, Perfect roast meal. pork. Um, or the other two? I was going to go with the, I was going to go Shanghai dumplings and then also the whole oh. roast pig you know when you get the whole roast pig as opposed to just the roast pork whole roast pig would be like very it's like you don't get that anywhere right it's almost like a feast like some sort of event celebration yeah, I got that in Hong Kong. Kind of like the turkey there where you take the skin off of it oh oh the hong kong yeah the honeysuckle yeah. like the the roast peak uh like that the one is what i'm style, talking right? oh yeah, my oh. god yeah yeah it's really hard i mean why not get them all i mean you can get them all in the singapore valley here in la exactly you know <laughs> so. so you went but your peking duck was number one for you and then roast Peking pork. Peking duck, yeah. Yep. Yeah, see, me, it's the same thing. Peking duck is my number one. And then we now have that uh, 
what's the Taiwanese place? Uh, Ding Tai Fang. Ding Tai Fang. Yep, it's a chain. Ding Tai Ding Fung, Fung. Yeah, is in yep. LA. They're in LA at the Century City Mall, and then there's one here, and then obviously they're they're in uh, Vegas. I think now they opened up DTF, and then uh, they obviously came out of I think Shanghai, right? We're no Taiwan. Man, they have some really great Peking duck and roast pork. Incredible. Uh, all right. Yeah. Well, listen, you, I look forward to meeting you in person. Uh, go ahead. Likewise. Next time, inside. maybe we can meet at uh, one of my favorite Peking duck restaurants in LA. Well, we should do that. Which one? Which one is your favorite? So, it's called the... Um, I don't even know the English name. It's in San Gabriel Valley. Uh, uh, San Gabriel I Valley out the English where all the good it. Chinese. Yeah. 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 Where the restaurants yeah, don't have English names, that's why you know. <laughs> it's authentic that's when you know you're you're at the right place is when there is literally no english like you can't find uh, it on google yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah yeah the 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 it's a really uh if you haven't been to the san gabriel valley uh chinese food scene it is i mean big I think dim sum scene big lines you think better than china you know i yeah. agree with you about korean food as well with the exception of korean soups which i will say when i or the jajimyang or like noodles in, yep. I think the noodles and soup in Korea were better than in K-Town, but everything else were as good. But because of the quality of the beef on average and the quality of meats and produce here in the United States, it's just so world-class that if the right chef comes from China or Korea and uses the ingredients here, they're just going to be, it's just hard to get high quality ingredients, right? In Asia, yeah, China. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, the, the meat quality is just so great here. All right, well, now I can't wait to come meet you in person. Thanks for including me in your journey as an investor and continued success. And I like the book you have on your shelf there. That's a good one. <laughs> Thank you. Personalize that book for you. On, did you put that book out for me? <laughs> yes, but good it is move, definitely so. one of my, my, my favorite books, you know, uh, of 2020. Uh, yeah, so it's on my shelf awesome. for sure. Yeah, thank you. All right. And uh, thanks for doing Remote Demo Day. People were just super stoked. Uh, you were, I think we had five or six times the demand for your deal than we had allocation. So hopefully we'll be able to put more money in for uh, members of the syndicate.com <laughs> uh, the next time Jake raises money. It was such a good experience. Yeah. So thank you for inviting was me it a good to experience? that. And yeah. this, it was really good. I mean, I, I pitched on Shark Tank with my co-founder the, the year before. And I had the same kind of adrenaline mm. rush, you know, for that event that you put together. Um, oh, that's and, great. Uh, yeah, and I loved it. I, I, I love doing it. If you're a founder, just go to remotedemoday.com. We're doing it 10 times in 2021. It's now become like... Our, Highly recommended. Our, yeah, it's become one of our great deal flow um, uh, tools is just we just ask that anybody who we have at Remote Demo Day be actively raising and give us an, a, you know, a modest allocation so that we can not uh, leave the people who come to it high and dry that you're not raising money but it's been great and it's free so if you're a founder go to remotedemoday.com and apply uh, alright Jake continued success and we'll see you all next time on This Week in Startups bye bye <laughs>